ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11. While you're turning there, if I say the name Abraham, what are some of the important concepts that come to mind when I say Abraham? Important concepts dealing with Abraham, what would they be? Use your outdoor voice, by the way. Okay, the covenant. What else comes to your mind you think of Abraham? Okay, sacrificing Isaac, his only son. What else comes to mind? Important concepts dealing with Abraham. Is what? Faith. Big one, isn't it? Father of three religions. You understand that? Islam claims him. Judaism claims him. We claim him. As father of religions. You think of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Wow, this guy is so far ahead of us. It's unbelievable, isn't it? How can we learn anything from Abraham if he's that far above us spiritually? I'll remind you of this in Romans 15. Whatever was written in former days, Old Testament was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have what? I mean, I study Abraham to get some hope. Yep. So keep that in mind as we start a study of Abraham. I say that because we're only hitting a small portion tonight, and in future times, whenever I might speak, we'll hit some other portions. You're in Genesis chapter 11. I'm going to start with chapter 11, verse 26, and read through chapter 12, verse 4. If you're able to stand, do that, and follow as I read, Genesis 11:26 through 12, 4. Verse 26, when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abraham, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran his grandson and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son's Abram wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. You can be seated. We're looking at some of the background first on who is this guy called Abram. We know we're told here that he came from Ur of the Chaldeans. That's present-day Iraq, if you understand some of your geography. And to understand some background, we have to figure out what was his upbringing? What kind of family did he have? Because we're not told that here, are we? 
Joshua does tell us something about that in Joshua chapter 24. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Abram and his family were other god worshipers. They were idol worshipers. They were false god worshipers. In fact, his name Abram means the father's exalted, which means he probably was named after one of the gods that they worshipped. Well, somebody didn't know that, did you? And we're told here in chapter 12, verse 4, and when we get to chapter 12, he'll be 75 years old. He has a wife, Sarai, whose name means princess. That's nice, isn't it? And she's in her mid-60s. So we're not talking with youngsters here, are we? As far as their background. So knowing this about Abram, here's the question. Why would God choose this guy? Why him? An ordinary, everyday idol worshiper who worshiped many other gods. Now some would say, well, because God chose the Israelites, right? Well, here's your problem. There were no Israelites yet because until Jacob becomes Israel, there are no Israelites. So they're not his chosen people there yet. Jacob is Abram's grandson. Well, because the Jews are special. Is he Jewish? The answer is no. Because you don't have the Jews until you have Judah, who's going to be one of Jacob's sons. So it's not because he was Jewish. In fact, just flip over to Genesis chapter 14 and look at verse 13. What's he known as? 14, 13, Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew. That's again where that word, this is where that word the Hebrews come. Hebrew means one who crossed a river. Probably dealing with the Euphrates, because that's where Ur of the Chaldeans was. Across the Euphrates River is what they had to cross. And so he's just known here generally as a Hebrew. Idol worshiper, nothing special about him. Why would God choose this guy? One word, grace. Because we've already read here, Abram didn't seek God. He was worshiping other gods. God sought him. God picked him out by grace. Well, can we relate to that? Here's what the Apostle Paul says, Galatians 1, about himself. When he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. Talking about all of us who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Abram was chosen just like we were, by grace. Not because of anything in his background, and not because of anything he had done to this point. Now you say, well, well, we read in verse chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, all these blessings that he gets. It's amazing, he gets all these blessings. Well, here's the question, did he give them because he was such a spiritual guy? That's clearly not true, he's an idol worshiper. At this point, he hasn't done anything yet other than leave his land. Does he get them because he's a special person? 
No, he just gets them because God by his grace gives him blessings. And it starts here in verse, verses 1 to 3 of chapter 12. And he says in verse 2, I will bless you and make your name great. Again, not because of anything Abram had done or any special person Abram was, but because God chose to give him personal blessings. But the question is, why does he give him blessings? Keep reading. I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Abram, I'm giving you blessings so you can be a blessing to others. It starts in this passage because he says, you'll be a blessing to a nation. I'll make of you a great nation. We know that's going to be Israel. A whole nation will be blessed because of you. International blessings. Verse 3, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The Messiah will come through Abram's line, all the way down. And also we already talked about, why do we have three major religions claiming him? Because in him all the families of the earth get blessed. There are extended blessings. I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. You get extended blessings because of Abram. And by the way, it's also a reminder why we had better as a nation do right things toward Israel. Any nation that dishonors Israel, God says they get cursed. Study historically what's happened to nations that have tried to take out Israel. Nothing good has happened. Think about that with the election coming up. Who you support, do they support Israel? That's an important thing for us as a church. So he's given blessings to be a blessing. Anybody here got any blessings from God? Yes or no? Why? Same reason. First Timothy 6, as for the rich in this present age, by the way, that's us, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. We have been greatly blessed. Why? They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of what is truly life. You realize we're given blessings for the same reason Abram was, not because who we are, not because of anything we've done, by the grace of God, and then we're supposed to take those blessings and bless others. A little more connection to this guy than maybe you thought to start with? Look at chapter 12. Let's look at his commands. Now the first verse of chapter 12 says this, The Lord said to Abram, if you've got a study Bible, which is a good thing to have, by the way, or study notes, you'll notice it says to you, The Lord had said to Abram. In other words, at least the first verse, maybe not the second one, at least the first verse has been told to Abram before this time where he's coming out of Haran. Go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house. We're told that in Acts 7. Stephen is preaching. And he says this, The God of glory appeared to our father Abram when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land, from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. 
Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans, lived in Haran, and after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. So this first verse was given to him when he was still in Ur of the Chaldeans. And all he's told is, go from your land, from your kindred, to the land I will show you. That's all the details he gets, nothing else. Well, it's a good thing God doesn't do that to us, does he? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will do what? Make straight your paths. Doesn't give me a whole lot of details there, does it? It starts with trust. And we know here that God doesn't give us all the details at once of what's going to be involved as we obey him. And please understand that with Abraham's story, that God's not going to reveal all the details at once. And that's going to be frustrating for Abraham. Is that frustrating for you? By the way, I'll give you the other side, though. If God told you everything was going to happen, you think you'd like it? Just say no. No. But we think we do. But we're reminded here that Abram's given very little to start out with. Now, what would this obedience cost him? You're back in chapter 12. Go from your country to start with. He was to leave the place he had been living for a number of years. We don't know how long they stayed in Haran when they came from Ur to Haran, but we know maybe 67-some years they had lived in Ur of the Chaldeans. And he's told, leave his country. Now, to his benefit, he does do this, according to Hebrews, and he went out not even knowing where he's going. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Definitely he's going to be completely out of his comfort, comfort zone if he's lived there his whole life. Are you willing for God to take you out of your comfort zone? Because that's part of the example of Abraham that we're told here. So he has to go from his country, he has to go from his kindred, and go from his father's house. He's supposed to leave his country, he's supposed to leave his family, and he's supposed to leave his father's house. Now do you understand, Abram is the oldest son. If he leaves his father's house, what is he leaving? His inheritance. The house, the land, everything that might have been there, around there. If he leaves that, he leaves the inheritance. Now you're saying, well, he's going with his father. But understanding, somehow his father's going along with him in this. Even though his father's leading him, this doesn't happen until Abram evidently is told to leave Ur. But either way, he's leaving family behind. He's leaving inheritance behind. There's always a cost to do what God wants us to do. But do the benefits outweigh the cost? That's what you have to determine. We know from Scripture that's true, but sometimes that's hard to convince ourselves that that is true, isn't it? One thing he's not told here. He's told, I'll make, your, I'll make of you a great nation, but he's not told how that's supposed to happen because we read back up in verse 30 that Sarai was barren. She had no child. And she's already at 65, pretty close past childbearing age at that time. But that detail has still not been revealed to Abram. Now, it seemed to be a good start. He left his country. 
But it's not as good a start as we want to see because we see partial obedience to start with. He was told to leave his father's house and leave his kindred. But where does he go? To Haran with his father and his nephew, and he settles in Haran. Here's your map if you can see it. He starts here in Ur. He goes north to Haran. Of course, the promised land is going to be down here. And he goes up to Haran, and they settle there. Now, you may say, why would they go to Haran? Well, Ur was the principal seat for the worship of the moon god, Sin. Interesting name. There was one other principal seat of worship of the moon god. Where do you think that might be? Haran. So his father takes him from one principal area of worshiping that god to the other principal area of worshiping that god, and they settle there. Not a great start. He doesn't leave his family, he goes with them, and he doesn't necessarily leave his idol worshiping at this point. But what's he do? He's going to proceed. Look at verse 5. Verse 4 says he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem. So when his dad dies, he evidently got the rest of this message that he would be blessed and he's to go to a land. He knew that from before. That's reinforced by God. And he leaves Haran and he goes to Shechem. And again, if you saw that, he's up in Haran up here. And he comes down. This is where Israel would be to Shechem. At that time, Shechem was still a sacred place. He evidently knew that. It was familiar in the area. But you'll notice it says, he passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the oak of Morah. Some of you are in translation, it says the tree of teaching. And they know historically with the Canaanites, this is where they worship the fertility gods. Remember, Abram's supposed to have a great nation of him. Sarai's barren. How are they going to get those kids? Well, he goes to the fertility tree, if you want to understand that. Now, fortunately, God's patient, isn't he? Verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So God tells him, all right, you're to the right place now. You're to the land, and he does now add the idea of offspring. He said great nation first. Now he at least adds the idea of offspring, which Abram had not been told before. And Abram does build an altar there, which does show who he was going to trust for his fertility. Not the Canaanite gods, but the God who had introduced himself to Abram at this time. So some progress, but still some concern. Where does he go after this? Verse 8, from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west, Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. So he continues south, a little bit south of Shechem where Jerusalem would be. It says hill country there. It's up in elevation, but it's south of there. He builds another altar. So again, different map. And you can see Shechem here, and just south of it will be Bethel, where Jerusalem will end up. He's pretty much in the right location where Jerusalem will be. And again, when he gets there, he builds an altar 
and wants to know information from God at this point. He's trying to have God tell him what he's supposed to be doing. But he doesn't stop. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negeb, or the Negeb. So again, he's still going a little bit south to this area. That's there. So what's going to happen? After he journeyed on, verse 9, still going to the Negeb, now verse 10, there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And so he's running to Egypt. You see no altar built. You see no prayers recorded at this point. He's going totally on his own instinct. Where can I get the most help? Where might be the most advantageous to me? Again, he's still heading underneath to go to Egypt. So why is this a problem? Well, that's one problem. There's another problem. Verse 11. When he's about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know you are a woman beautiful in appearance. At 65, she's still beautiful. Ladies, you all are, so don't say anything there. That's not a knock on anybody. But evidently, she stood out for her beauty, even at 65, and Abram knows it. And it's going to be a problem as he gets to Egypt. But I remind you of this. Is he supposed to go to Egypt? We'll see why later. Why is he going to Egypt? Keep that in your mind. So he's about to enter Egypt, verse 11. He knows Sarai is beautiful in appearance. And here's what's going to happen. Verse 12, when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me but they will let you live. So how do we get around that? Verse 13, say you are my sister. So here's his plan. We're going into Egypt. I know I'm going to be in trouble because you look good. They're going to figure that out. They're going to want to kill me and take you. So guess what, Sarah? You lie, and I'll support your lie. Sounds reasonable, doesn't it? Good protection? You might think, why would he even come up with this? This is Abraham we're talking about, right? The father of three religions? How could he even think to start with a lie when he gets to this place? Go over to Genesis chapter 20 for a second. I will remind you in Abram's life, this is going to happen again. And my guess, even though it's not recorded, it happened more than, more than twice. But in chapter 20, Abram's going to use this same lie with another king, Abimelech. And in this one, he's going to tell us what his reasons for it are. Verse 12, he tells this to Abimelech. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. So is there some truth to this statement? The answer is, yeah, it's a half-truth. Sarai was his half-sister through his father. And so it's not completely false, it's just a little false. It's just a little deceptive. That doesn't sound so bad, does it? There's really another reason he gives here, though, in verse 11. 
Abram said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. Well, if they're pagans and they don't worship true God, they don't deserve the truth, do they? We can lie to people that aren't Christians, isn't that true? I mean, if I fudge something on my tax return, it's just the government, isn't it? The government's godless anyway. It really doesn't matter, does it? Or that police officer that catches me speeding and I come up with a good excuse why I was speeding. He shouldn't have stopped me anyway if he's really paying attention, should he? By the way, who should have had the fear of God here? Abram should have had the fear of God. And when this famine happens, you see no altar built, you see no prayers recorded. And later, a number of years later, Isaiah is going to remind them why this is a problem. Isaiah 31, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Using what's human region, reason, human logic, this just sounds good. Egypt, there's no famine, we'll go there. Well, number one, God didn't tell him to go there, and he doesn't ask God, should I go there? If he'd asked God, what might God have said? He convinces himself it's okay. What might God have said? Well, how about the Father, Titus 1-2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never does what? You can read, who never does what? Never lies. Well, how about God the Son? John 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and... How about God the Spirit, called the Spirit of truth, the one who guides us into all truth? What are we commanded to do because of the God that we have? Rather, speaking the truth in love, Ephesians 4, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Because we want to grow up into Christ, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the Truth with his neighbor. Is truth important to God? Is there a cost to truth or just a cost to lies? I'll read you a story I've read to some of you before. If this is the God we have, how do we represent him? During World War II, a missionary... John Wolfinger was leading a group of about 100 Christians in Borneo. When the Japanese military took control of the island, they sought to arrest the missionary and execute him. The Christians came up with a plan to hide him. Wolfinger reasoned that by running from his captors, he would be giving his new converts the wrong picture of God. When they urged him further, he explained that when the Japanese asked where Wolfinger was hiding, his followers would have to lie, and that was unacceptable. So rather than risk leaving his followers with compromised pictures of God's character, Wolfinger stayed, was captured, and was executed. Is the truth that important? How are we doing at telling the truth and not rationalizing half-truths? or partial truths, or just leaving out some of the truth. 
so that we look better. Here's Abram giving us a picture of what happens when you forget that God honors truth. So what's his real reasons? Back to chapter 12. We know his real reasons. Number one, he's scared to death, isn't he? What did he say in verse 12? When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me. I remind you, in this culture, they would kill a husband to take a wife, but they wouldn't kill a brother. Sounds weird, doesn't it? The brother was the protector. And to get the woman, they had to go through the brother and make a deal with the brother. But even with that, he's scared because he knows how beautiful his wife is. Now question, is being scared still a good reason to lie? No. It's a reason. And we know that's why he is lying. Not a good reason, but it's a reason, isn't it? What's the real reason? He's selfish. Verse 12, this is his wife, then they will kill me, but they'll let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you. Isn't that an interesting phrase? You lie and I'll support it so it goes well with me. There's a real interest in Sarai there, isn't it? The second one's even better. And that my life may be spared, look at the last three words, for your sake. I'm really doing this for your sake. Because, of course, you want me around, is what Abram's thinking. He's not worried about Sarai at all. He's totally selfish in what he's thinking, what he's doing, and it's amazing how many times we try to get people to go along with what we're doing, and it really has nothing for their benefit. It has all to do with ours, doesn't it? By the way, do you think you couldn't relate to Abram? Well, there's a third reason here why he lies. He doesn't pay attention to his greatest area of temptation. Half-truths to protect himself. He's going to do it again in chapter 20. There's some indicators later on from his family that he may have done it more times. But somehow he's fallen into this pattern that with something is going to be a possibility of a problem for him he will give partial truths or outright lies, whatever it might take, to protect himself. And so he's not paying attention to that great, his greatest area of temptation to tell a half-truth. We're reminded of this for us in 1 Corinthians 10, aren't we? These things happened to them as an example. Again, talking about the Old Testament. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, I'll never do anything like Abraham, right? Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. What keeps temptations from being beyond my ability is the way of escape. Abram does not watch for or take any way of escape. His plan from the time of the famine on has not been good. But there were always have been ways out, and he doesn't take them. Well, what are some of the ways of escape? Let's just review these. Number one, 
Realize your weakest areas. He didn't realize his. Psalm 119.9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? Do young people have a problem with purity sometimes? Is it a struggle? And even the psalmist said, Hey, if this is your greatest area of weakness, how are you going to take, find a way of escape for that? Well, then he gives the answer. Rehearse the scripture you need by guarding it according to your word. And two verses later he says, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Everybody here knows their greatest area of weakness, their greatest area of temptation. It's great if you're learning the verse every month that we're learning as a church, but my question is, are you learning verses you need to get help for your greatest areas of temptation that you know? Those are the verses you especially need to learn as a way of escape when the temptation comes. Because when the temptation comes, Jesus gave us an example in Luke 4, didn't he? When Satan tempts him three times, how does Jesus answer? He tempts him with, make this rock into bread, and Jesus says, it is written man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God well hey just worship me and Jesus says it is written you only worship God well hey just test God and what does he say it says do not put the Lord your God to the test his way of escape were here's scripture I follow scripture that's my answer you don't know scripture you need, you got nothing to remember. Your way of escape is scripture. How about this? You're requesting help when you need it? Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane with his three disciples that were with him? What did he tell them? Watch and pray that you do what? Nobody remembers? That you enter not into temptation. Their temptation that night was sleep because he told them to keep praying for him. And they could have prayed for help not to fall asleep. In the Lord's model prayer, we're told to pray, lead us not into temptation. How much every day are you praying for God to help you not give in to temptation? Especially the ones you know you have. That's your way of escape, to pray for help. We're told to rely on the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.16, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's a pretty good option, isn't it? That the Holy Spirit will help me not give in to my temptations if I listen to him? What will he tell me? He may tell me to resist. James 4.7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. More than not, he's going to tell me to run. Because we're told all the way through the New Testament, flee youthful lust, flee sin, put off this, do whatever you have to get away from this. You want a good Old Testament example? Think of Joseph. Whatever you have to do, run. Get out, don't go. What should Abram done as soon as he figured out I'm going to Egypt and I'm going to have a problem with my wife? What should he have done? Turned around and run back. Even if there's a famine in the land, I don't care. He doesn't take the way of escape. 
He doesn't pay attention to his largest area of weakness and temptation, and it ends up he gives into it. Quote for you from John MacArthur, no one, not even Satan, can make us sin. He can't even make an unbeliever sin. No temptation is inherently stronger than our spiritual resources. People sin because they want to sin. Why does he lie here? Because he wanted to. Rather than take the way of escape, all the spiritual resources that God has supplied and said, you don't have to give in to this. Well, we're still in Genesis 12. That was the plan. Sarah was going to lie. He was going to support that. This has to work, right? And you most, most of you know the story. This backfires big time, doesn't it? After verse 13, where he says, Say, you're my sister, it may go well with me because of you, and my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Look at verse 19. Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Pharaoh didn't just take her into his house. He already took her as a wife. Good plan, Abram. Worked real well. But they didn't kill me. You think Abram's thinking that a little bit? But now what's he going to do? Verse 17. Results going to be God's going to protect him anyway. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Notice it doesn't say because of Abram. Sarai's following her husband's lead. Abram's responsible. Sarai's caught in the middle here. And God protects them anyway. Now, number one, why? Verse 17, because Pharaoh feared the power of a rival deity. Pharaoh thought he was a god. All these plagues come on, he can't stop. I better give in. This, this deity is as powerful or more powerful than I have, so I better give in to it. But there's also a second thing here we don't see that culturally. Interesting, in this Egyptian culture back here, God's law was kind of written on their conscience. They would not have any relations with the woman until they were sure she was not pregnant. And so there would be a waiting period of quite a while while they made sure that she was not with child. Isn't that interesting? Because they wanted to make sure she was pure. Well, where'd they get that stuff? God's law in their minds protected them anyway. Now here's the question. So this is how I take the lesson? That I can do what I want and God will protect me anyway? Well, that worked real well with Samson with Delilah, didn't it? He made some bad choices there and God just protected him, right? How about David with Bathsheba? How well did that one work out? That God just protected him and nothing happened. Please understand, God has a plan for Abram, 
And because of Sarai, he's showing mercy and grace, but this is not a rule that I can make any stupid, sinful decision I want, and God will get me out of it. That's not what we're being taught. You've got to read the rest of Scripture and understand that's not the way it works. This is God's choice in spite of Abram, not because of him. But how about this? What perception does Pharaoh now have of Abram's God? Verse 18, so Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. You think Pharaoh's perception of Abram's God's pretty good here? He'll perceive of Abram's God the same way he perceives Abram. Interesting, we're told the same thing in Romans 2. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For it's written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. What do people think of your God? It'll have something to do with what they think of you. And Pharaoh's opinion of God here, even though he recognizes this is a powerful God, his view of him is pretty low if if Abram's one of his chief followers. Well, how about this? What are some of the products that happen? We skip verse 16. Sarai was taken to Pharaoh's house, and for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. Remember, Abram's now seen as the protector. You've got to buy him off to get the woman And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. And verse 20, they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. He made out like a bandit here. Look at all this stuff he gets to carry off from Egypt. No real consequences, right? One of the servants is Hagar. You know that story. How well is that going to play into the picture? Galatians chapter 6. God is not mocked. Be not deceived. Whatever a man sows, that will he also... You better understand. On the surface, it looks pretty good. But behind the scenes, we have an idea what's going to happen. And we're still reaping the benefits of what's going to happen. And that's why we're reminded of this. Please understand from this that sinful choices always affect more than just us. It's amazing how much we forget that. God told the children of Israel in Exodus, you shall not bow down to other gods or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. What is God reminding us as parents, as grandparents, that sins we continue to do will affect our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. Do you understand that? Now, will they pay for my sin? The answer, according to Ezekiel, is no. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So the reminder is this. The sins that we just keep committing and we don't deal with biblically, it's probably a pretty good idea that our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren will go ahead and do the same sins. 
and the effects of those sins are going to be carried down because they're going to think the same sins are okay. You'll understand if you read the rest of Genesis that half-troops become a family trait. Isaac will use the same thing with his wife that Abram does with Sarah here. Do you think, who do you think Isaac picked that up from? Don't be deceived that what we do affects more than just us. Sin is far-reaching. Now you're thinking, wow, I thought this was supposed to give me hope. Well, number one, it should give you hope. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Because you understand Abram is like us. Do you understand that? That God chooses to use normal, everyday people to do what is going to happen. And we know Abram is going to do some amazing things with God's work through him. So I don't want you to fool yourself thinking, well, Abram was far above us, and so I can't ever be spiritual in that way. No, Abram is just like us. And consequences of his life are going to be a problem. But please understand this from the book of Hebrews, that God remembers us for our faith and not for our failures. That's the grace of God. He chooses us by grace. Now, he's more than happy in Scripture to show us the sins of people so we see the examples that are in there. But that's not why they're remembered. You've got a whole chapter here in chapter 11 of people who did all sorts of sin, but that's not what they're remembered for. Verse 8, by faith Abram obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive his inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abram's going to make more sins than just what we read tonight, but that's not what he's remembered for. Those sins are covered by Christ. Abram believes God and has counted to him for what? righteousness and fortunately after that point God remembers us for our faith and not for our failures but understand we're supposed to learn from Abram's life why does God bless you well you don't know I got to go back preach the sermon again now we got another hour to go God blesses you why so who are you going to bless this week with the blessings God given you Number two, God wants us to know our greatest areas of weakness and temptation and find the ways of escape in Scripture that we don't give in to them. What are you going to work on this week so you don't give in to temptation to sin in ways you've done before? And thirdly, remind yourself from Abram, foolish, sinful decisions cause effects not just on us, but it spreads to others in ways we never intended, but we can't control that. Learn from his lesson. Join me in prayer. Father, we're thankful for the examples you give us in Scripture. That the ones you choose in Scripture are just like us. You chose them by your grace, you demonstrate your grace and mercy to them, and you use them many times in spite of themselves, and you'll do the same for us. Help us this week to find ways to be obedient to your word, 
that we don't follow the negative example of Abram that's given here, but follow the positive ones that will get out of our comfort zone when you call us to. We'll let you lead the paths for us, even if we don't have all the details, and we'll just try to obey and then see how you work. And we know in that you'll be glorified and we'll be blessed. Amen.